now. <laughs> I, there's a few places in that video, you know, where they cut the video and they skip back to another part of the trail. I don't know if that's because one of the guys fell off the cliff and they had to start over. I'm not sure. Uh, that's a trail in Austria that I think was intended to be a foot trail, which would be exciting enough for most people. But to ride it on a mountain bike has to be pretty intense. And I was watching that video, uh, as I often go through looking for videos for Sunday mornings, and usually, you know, we show something very spiritual. And I was watching that in disbelief, and it occurred to me that I should show that here. Uh, because I think being a follower of Jesus Christ is kind of like riding on that trail. Uh, it's a narrow path. Indeed, it's fraught with risk, a very real danger. Uh, uncertainty sometimes around every corner and it's a journey that requires total commitment to make it successfully because you can't very well turn around or or get off the path without serious injury or destroying yourself but did you notice their confidence as they rode down that trail they were relentless in their quest to keep going and confident in the journey even when they had to stop and make repairs along the way, it seemed like they were just undaunted because they knew what was waiting for them at the end of the trail. It's actually a very famous trail in Austria. The payoff, once you reach the end of that trail, are breathtaking views of the Mediterranean Sea and the huge waterfalls. It's like a paradise. What a parallel that is to the journey of the believer. You know, our path uh, can at times be quite uncertain filled with risk, but the payoff at the end, I think, makes it all worth it. And yet for now, while we're still in this world, we're called to persevere relentlessly for the cause of Christ. Just this week, I received an email I was telling you about from our Assemblies of God leadership requesting that we pray for our AG families around the world and, and uh, Christians, even those certainly that aren't AG, who have lost loved ones just this past week uh, due to persecution and terrorism. Uh, here's just a portion of that email. It says, late last week, AG workers in the Middle East reported two young brothers from the Lighthouse School in Gaza were killed when a missile from an F-16 jet fighter hit their home. In Iraq, increasing chaos surrounds believers as a militant group known as Islamic State, previously known as ISIS, tightens its grip in and around the city of Mosul. All Christians have been ordered to leave the city, leaving all of their property behind, or be executed. Reports are that many fleeing families were stopped at checkpoints and are stripped of money and personal possessions. It is believed that most Christian families have now fled Mosul. Then over the weekend, Dutch officials released the names of passengers from the Netherlands who were aboard the Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, which was reportedly shot down over the Ukraine with no survivors. Among the passengers were Arnoud Poison, his wife, and their two-year-old daughter. Arnoud was a former student at Azusa Theological Seminary in Amsterdam. He worked with Chi Alpha at Free University in Amsterdam and did an internship with Teen Challenge, one of our Assemblies of God ministries. Tim Sutherland, AG Director of Northwestern Europe, states, Arnoud was a diligent student who loved the Lord. His death is a great loss to the Dutch Assemblies of God and also among the missionary families who knew and loved him. Two women from AG churches in Indonesia uh, were also killed this past week, and it goes on and on and on. It is easy, I think, for us to become somewhat complacent about what Christians face on a daily basis all around the world. We see so much hurt and abuse and destruction going on with such frequency now because of the abundant uh, access to electronic media that we have in our society today. And so these kind of events where Christians are persecuted and killed 
simply for their faith, I think, can sometimes easily be forgotten. And thankfully, we still live in a country where we're free to worship as we choose. And we're free from any real harsh persecution, certainly. But again, because these crimes against humanity, I think, now flood our intake through the media, it's not hard to become mostly desensitized to it. And yet that doesn't lessen the reality of what is actually happening in any way. There are still Christians who are persecuted and dying every day in other parts of the world for their faith. Nonetheless, in the midst of that chaos and brokenness and loss and all of the intense danger and the opposition to the gospel in many of these countries, there are still believers who willingly set aside their own welfare for the opportunity to wade into hostile territory and cast their nets. It's astounding. In fact, many Christians are fleeing these countries that are, are persecuting and killing them, and we certainly understand why they leave. I might be leading the charge to the border if I lived there. But there are yet some who are running against the tide of the exiles, headlong into the fray, all for the chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if, if only to save one, I know that many of them would still go because they are relentless Christians. The cause of Christ has become their own. And, and the Great Commission is their only mission, their sole mission. And the result is that they live for Christ rather than themselves. And, and I don't mean to say that those who flee are any less committed to the cause of Christ. On the contrary, as we'll see in our text this morning, often that's all part of God's plan, actually, for spreading the gospel to other places. And really, that is the calling of every Christian, to take up the cross of Christ and live for Him instead of for ourselves, no matter where that road leads us or how full of risk and uncertainty it may be. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we'll all be called to a war-torn area or some foreign country averse to the gospel. It will for some, but for others, it may be a call away from a comfortable lifestyle that we've chosen in order to pursue His will for your life. It may mean operating as an agent for Christ right where you are, but in a way that is maybe far beyond what you're naturally comfortable with. And that all sounds pretty risky, because it is. But we have to be relentless for the cause of Christ in, in this journey of life if we're going to fulfill our destiny in Him. I'm convinced of that. John Piper uh, once wrote, either waste your life or live with risk. Either sit on the sidelines or get in the game. After all, life was no cakewalk for Jesus, and He didn't promise it would be any easier for His followers. So we shouldn't be surprised by resistance and persecution. Yet most of us play it safe. We pursue comfort. We spend ourselves to get more stuff or be entertained. We are all tempered by the, uh, tempted by the idea of security, the possibility of a, a cozy Christian Christianity with no hell at the end. But what kind of life is that really? It's a far cry from the adventurous and abundant, from truly rich and really full, and it's certainly not the heights and depths that Jesus calls us to. And then later in the same writing, he says, it is better to lose your life than to waste it. That seems like a perspective that is extreme. And it is extreme. And it also happens to be Jesus' perspective. In Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Apostle Paul certainly took these words to heart. In 1 Corinthians 15.31, he said, I die every day. And obviously he was still living when he said that, so what did he mean? And sometimes we quote this verse by Paul, and we, we say it as if he was talking about constantly dying to sin, but that's actually not what he was saying in this passage. The context makes it clear. Paul was speaking of a physical death. He was expressing the fact that he faced real physical death every single day that he chose to live for Jesus Christ. He expected that his life could end at any moment because of his commitment to living for Jesus. And so, of course, living for Christ can and does result at times in physical death for some in certain parts of the world, certainly. But what about us? We're not being persecuted, at least not to that extent, thankfully. Well, when Jesus talked about losing our life for his sake, he wasn't only referring uh, to physical death. Or included in that statement, in dying to our own will, in deference to his, you understand, all of you who have actually done that, that that is a very real death as well. When you die to your own will, your own desires, your own plan, in preference of his. Having to uproot your family, move to another city or state or country in order to honor God's will, it can be very difficult. Giving up your primary source of income, quitting your job uh, to pursue ministry that he's called you to can be very difficult. Choosing to live far be below your current standard of living so that you can answer that call can be really tough and hard on your family as well. And many of you know that. And over the years, I've watched people give up everything to become missionaries and move around the world to minister the gospel to complete strangers because they knew they were called. So they gave up every comfort and convenience and security to fulfill that great commission from Christ to make disciples. And I can tell you that the harder you pursue that calling in your life, the more extreme that your push is, to the ministry of the gospel, generally speaking, the greater the resistance you will face. The more you give up for Christ, the more people will question your motives. And the farther you go down the path of pursuing him, the further some will distance themselves from you. I heard um, Pastor Ralph Painter tell someone last Sunday here, he said, you know, there are no free lunches in the ministry. I can tell you that's true. Okay, And the key to all of this is that instead of living for ourselves, we die to ourselves and we live for Christ. That is what it means to be a relentless Christian. And it's the only way that we can ever truly please God. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But first, what does it take to get there? How do we actually do that? How do we become a relentless Christian? And that's what we're going to discuss this morning as we continue working our way through the book of Acts in our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 8. So if you'd like, you can turn there with me. Last week we worked through chapter 7. Stephen's testimony before the religious council just before he was killed. And we talked about the importance of telling uh, your story and the power that there is when you tell your story to others. 
We don't know if those early followers of Christ knew this at the time, but what we know now is that Stephen's ultimate sacrifice set off a firestorm of events that shook the world like never before. It was the, uh, the genesis of the New Testament church spreading to the ends of the earth. Okay, so let's pick up our story in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. Now this, of course, is referring to the execution of Stephen, which Saul, later to be named Paul, oversaw and approved of. Okay, let's continue. And there arose on that uh, day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, so this sounds like a pretty terrible series of events. Horrible crimes against innocent people that never should have happened. In fact, if the government in America began ravaging the church, entering house after house or church after church and began dragging off men and women and putting us in prison, we would surely cry out to God and we would surely cry out at our government in protest. We would most certainly try to fight back through our own political and, and legal systems as much as we possibly could. There would be an all-out war between the church and the government. And I say that with confidence because now, even if a law is passed or even suggested that is perceived to limit the freedom of the church in any way in this country, there's generally a massive uproar in the courts and in the political arena with lobbyists and, and members of Congress and sometimes all the way up to the, the highest executive and judicial branches of government because we're all about fighting for our rights in this country. And the fruit of that is that we enjoy tremendous freedoms. We have freedom to worship, to evangelize, to meet uh, when and where we want, to own property, to form churches. Freedoms that are really easy for us, I think, to take for granted because we've always had them in this country. And that is a part of the beauty, of course, of living in the U.S. with the ability to be represented in our government and the systems that we have in place that allow us to challenge the laws and rulings by those in legal and civil authority. And it's great. We're very fortunate in that respect. However, if we're not thoughtful, uh, careful, when injustice is rendered against the innocent, unsuspecting people, good Christian people, we can fall into a pattern of thinking that anytime something difficult or unfair or unjust happens to us, that it cannot be God's will. And therefore that that ruling, that unfair treatment, that difficult circumstance must be reversed or remedied as quickly as possible because that simply cannot be a part of God's plan. And that thinking would be a mistake on our part. Look, certainly we pray for deliverance from trying situations. Yes, we use whatever legal and ethical means available to us to represent and stand up for biblical standards in our nation. Every chance we get, without a doubt, we hope and pray for God to spare us from injustice. But we're not being scripturally honest if we claim that everything that makes us uncomfortable or everything that is unfair or unjust is outside of God's will for us. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? God derives no pleasure in seeing any of us suffer. 
He does not take joy when we endure persecution. He does not want us to be miserable at all. But he most definitely uses all manner of circumstances and injustices and persecution and unfair treatment to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people. There's far too much overwhelming evidence of that in Scripture to deny it. We, we simply cannot always discern the plan of God. We know his will. Absolutely, that's plainly stated in the pages of his word. But his plan, the manner in which he chooses to accomplish that will, is for him to know and for us to find out. He reveals to us what we need to know, when we need to know it. And our responsibility is to accept that in his sovereignty, he's working out his purposes in our lives. And then get on with his program. Regardless of our circumstances and in our free will, we have the ability to choose that. And that's exactly what the early church was doing here. Okay, We don't read anything about a massive protest against the persecution that we see in Acts chapter 8. We don't hear anything about those early believers giving up on the mission because the heat was turned up. The pressure was on. On the contrary, what we see is God building his church through the most unlikely extraordinary means. The very activity meant to crush the church actually caused it to ignite and spread like wildfire. Verse 3 says that Paul was ravaging the church. The original Greek uses the word lumino to describe what he was doing, which is an ancient word that depicts a particularly brutal and sadistic cruelty. This was bad. Okay, and verse 1 says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So there's this unsparing, vicious persecution of innocent Christians going on in mass. And as a result, these followers of Christ are leaving Jerusalem and fleeing to other places far and wide. Make no mistake, these were hard times for the Christian community. They're being uprooted from their homes and having to leave behind all that they know family, friends, occupations, and go to some difficult places. Not so different from what's happening right now in our world. But what were these Christians doing when they got to these other places? These strange and unfamiliar destinations. Let's read it. Verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's interesting. Instead of holding up in some quiet little town... And blending in with the locals, they go about preaching the word. The very activity that got them into hot water to begin with. And now, just for a moment, skip back to Acts 1.8. And we'll put it up on the screen. And we'll take a look at Jesus speaking after his resurrection and just before he ascends into heaven. Right before his followers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, that was a prophetic statement by Jesus that was fulfilled in Acts 2. And then he continues, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, he says in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, and where were all the Christians scattered to when Saul was ravaging the church? Chapter 8, verse 1 again. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were already there. And then they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And by the way, interestingly enough, later in chapter 8, we'll see Philip, one of the seven chose to serve the church with Stephen, taking the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. 
where the Holy Spirit was leading him. And one really fascinating detail about that is the fact that the first century Romans and Greeks believed Ethiopia to be at the very southern edge of the earth. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Exactly what Jesus said would happen is now coming true. And how is it? How is it that God's plan is being accomplished? What Jesus said would happen through the brutal, merciless, unfair, unjust, cruel treatment of God's people. Why is that? Why that way? Well, that's probably more answer than we can give in the amount of time we have. But I can tell you, at least for one reason, those Christians probably would have never left Jerusalem otherwise. Jerusalem was the place that you aspired to get to. It was the place that you wanted to go, not the place that you wanted to leave. There would have been no reason to leave Jerusalem had the people of God not been under so much pressure to move away. See? We don't always understand why we go through some of the trials that we go through. Sometimes we get, of course, ourselves into bad situations because of our own bad choices. That's true. But that isn't always the case. Not by a long shot. Sometimes trouble shows up at your doorstep and we haven't done anything to bring that upon ourselves. And it can be hard, unfair, unjust. Uh, we go through trials uh, at times that we didn't ask for and we don't understand. And I'm absolutely convinced that at times God allows us to experience those trials to get us to move into the place where he wants us to be. The place where we will be most effective in doing his will. And he knows that if we don't become extremely uncomfortable where we are, we'll never leave. The gospel would have never made it to Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth had God's people, these good, innocent, faithful Christians, never experienced the injustice and cruelty and unfairness of a system that was trying to rid them from the earth. Okay? Let's not miss this point. Sometimes your trials are intended to get you moving in another direction. And you may not know where you're going to end up, but if God is pressuring to you to move, then it's time to get moving. He will take care of the final destination. You just have to take that first step, and then he'll guide you from there. This is what we see Philip doing here in our text this morning. And I'll tell you, I can attest to it in my own life. I've been from here to Alaska to England and back in a five-year hurricane that I could not have predicted and I certainly did not plan. But I'm not working on my plan. I'm being faithful to his. So listen to me. Take heart this morning. Because if you're going through a trial in your life right now, and it may be one of the hardest times of your life, that doesn't always mean that you're outside of God's will. Or that you've somehow missed it. On the contrary, He may just be preparing you for the greatest opportunity of your life. So hang on. Stay the course. And don't give up. These first century Christians couldn't have possibly had it any worse. 
and yet even in complete turmoil, displaced from everything they'd ever known, God opened doors that they never could have imagined, and they were relentless in taking advantage of the unlikely opportunity before them to spread the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's the first lesson that we learn in our text this morning. If you're taking notes, point one, relentless Christians go wherever God leads them. Okay, it may not be the place that you expected to go. It may not fit into your plan, but that's okay. When God is directing, that's the key. Relentless Christians go wherever he leads them. Let's continue reading from verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and then proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Okay, verse 5 says that Philip went down to Samaria. Why? Samaria was north of Jerusalem. But it doesn't say he went up to Samaria. He didn't go over to Samaria. It says he went down. All right? In the ancient world, from a, a theological standpoint, one always ascended to his place of worship. So you would go down to any place from Jerusalem if you were a God-fearing person. But to Samaria, you would have to go way down. Samaritans were half-Jews who came to be as a result of intermarriage between the people brought in during the deportation by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. with those Jews that remained. And then later during the return from exile... Uh, to rebuild the temple, you read in Ezra, uh, the Jews refused the Samaritans any part of the reconstruction process and thus began a long-standing animosity that is reflected in several New Testament uh, texts. The Samaritans only believed, uh, the Pen uh, they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, as valid scripture. Uh, they considered Mount Gerizim the rightful center of worship rather than Jerusalem. So the Jews viewed the Samaritans as the lowest of the low. These heretical half-Jews, not worthy of their time. And the Samaritans were happy to return that, those feelings. They hated each other. In fact, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.9 was shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would even talk to her, let alone ask her for water. So these two ethnic groups had absolutely nothing to do with one another for a thousand years or better. And here's Philip, right in the thick of it, spreading the gospel to the Samaritan people. We can't really imagine the boldness that Philip must have had to take the gospel to Samaria. Think of the, the very last place on the planet Earth that you would ever want to go to. And then fill it with people who completely hate you and everything that you stand for. That's where God sent Philip. To proclaim the gospel. And by the way, a revival broke out. Because Philip was exactly where God wanted him. But he never would have gone to Samaria on his own. He would have had no reason to. And yet Philip was relentless. And relentless Christians go wherever God leads them. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and then the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, Samaria was obviously a very spiritually dark place. We see Philip casting out demons and now witnessing to and even baptizing a magician named Simon. And so even though he's in a very harsh and normally unfriendly environment, it appears at this point that everything's going well for Philip, right? Or is it? Let's keep reading. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, some interesting developments in this passage, and in the next portion worth pointing out. Uh, two weeks ago, in chapter 6, we pointed out the fact that there are no lone rangers in the kingdom of, of God. All right, ministry in the New Testament, after the church was established, all happened through and as a function of the church. Even the great apostle Paul was taken to the church by Barnabas and approved for ministry. And then he was consequently sent out by the church to carry out his ministry. Later he was sent out by the apostles. At at least one point he was sent out by James, uh, an elder, pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was supported by the church throughout his ministry. Paul was no lone ranger. Right? He expressed his ministry as an agent of the church, sent out and approved by the church. And if you were here two weeks ago, you recall that being the reason that we talked about that we don't allow anyone who enters this church a platform before this congregation unless they're approved and sent out from another local expression of the church. We have people that come in here that tell me all about their qualifications and why I should let them speak or prophesy over this body. And I ask them, okay, well, where are you from? What church have you come from? Well, I've been sent by God. Well, I got that part. But what church are you from? They're not from a church. I don't need church approval. I have God's approval. That's the answer I get, right? You understand, before the New Testament, you had Moses. You had all of these, these guys, right, in the Old Testament. David, they heard directly from God. They went off and did what God called them to. From the New Testament on, everyone in the Bible functioned through the church. Right? There were no more lone rangers. No one went out and said, God gave me direction and I'm gone doing this and I'm doing my own thing because all I need is God directing me. No, if you're not functioning through the church, you're not functioning in God's system. All right? So we require that people that come in here have been sent from a church that we know and that we trust because the church from Acts 2 on is God's primary means by which the gospel is expressed. So we need to be aware of those who come into the church and they announced their greatness and their godliness like Simon was doing before the people here in our text. And yet they haven't been out, sent out or approved by the body of Christ, okay? And you can listen to that message. There's a lot more teaching on that from two weeks ago on our website if you'd like. The reason I bring all of that up here is that because it's tempting up until verse 14 to view Philip as a one-man band. A lone ranger, a guy with no church covering. He's just out there on his own. Spirit's leading him, doing the work of the gospel. And clearly, there's more to it than that. For just about the time he was seeing some results, the Jerusalem church sends out Peter and John to verify the legitimacy of what was happening. It's church oversight. 
And it turns out that was a good move. Let's keep reading it. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said will come upon me. There are several phrases here in Peter's rebuke that indicate that Simon's conversion experience earlier with Philip probably was not genuine to begin with. All right? The phrase, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, that's Old Testament language for having absolutely no share in something. He also says to Simon, pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And then instead of responding, interestingly enough, with uh, something like, pray for me that I may have true faith or that I may be restored, redeemed, converted, Simon asks, pray for me that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You see, Simon believes enough to be concerned about escaping punishment, but that's not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus Christ and longing for redemption, true conversion, and restoration to God. It's simply not enough that Simon believed and was baptized. James 2.19, James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, uh, a mental assent to the Christian message alone does not save anyone. The faith that saves, according to Paul and James, embraces the truth of the gospel and then acts accordingly. That's why Jesus, referring to false prophets in Matthew 7, he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. All right? Simon's fruit was bad. He may well have believed in Philip's message of the gospel so much so that he was even baptized, but he hadn't put his faith truly and trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? So not all of Philip's efforts here were necessarily successful, and that's okay because Philip was acting in conjunction with the other church leaders and under their authority and covering and with their help. The work of the gospel, therefore, was able to continue. Let's read verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, so Peter and John go down to Samaria to verify the legitimacy of Philip's ministry there. They set some things in order. Uh, they help Philip with the work uh, that he's doing there, and then they return to Jerusalem. And after all of that, you'd think that maybe Philip would take a break, you know, hit the beach for a few days of rest, kind of chill out, maybe lay a little low for a while, but that's not what happens. In fact, Philip is just getting started. Let's keep going. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Well, that sounds nice. Maybe not so much. Gaza was the last stop, the last watering hole uh, before the desert on the road from Jerusalem to Egypt. It seems like an odd instruction, 
because his first destination that Philip was led to was a bustling, well-populated city. But regardless, Philip was once again obedient to the leading of the Spirit. Okay, So let's finish our text for this morning, starting at verse 27. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And it was common in that day for people to read out loud. And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is quoted from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. And obviously it was prophetically speaking of the Christ. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And he passed through. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You may notice here that verse 37, by the way, is missing. And that's because uh, our sort of oldest, the most reliable manuscripts that we have don't have verse 37 in them. That verse simply says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Okay, that's Philip responding to the eunuch's request for baptism. And then it says, And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right, so whether or not... Verse 37 is valid scripture, doesn't really add or take away the significance to the story because in verse 36, the eunuch asks, what prevents me from being baptized? And that request in the Greek language in the book of Acts was used continuously as an affirmation of one's faith immediately following conversion when some requested baptism. Okay, So when they specifically requested to be baptized after hearing the gospel, that was generally an indication that they had already placed their faith and trust in Christ. And interestingly enough, we don't see that with Simon earlier. It simply says that he was baptized. So he, he may well not have requested it. It may have simply been something that he uh, agreed to because it was happening on a large scale with the crowds in Samaria as Philip was preaching to them, although we don't really know that for certain. Okay, But by all accounts... It appears that the Ethiopian eunuch not only believed, but placed his faith in Jesus Christ and was affirmed by his request for in the act of being baptized. Which is, by the way, why it is so important that we're all baptized by public submersion in water, as the ancient Greek describes it. When we're of age, that's important when we're of age to understand what we're doing. Because that is the outward public testimony of our faith in Christ. And we're commanded by Jesus to take that step after we place our faith in Him. And we're going to have a sign-up sheet next week. We're going to be telling you about in just a few weeks we're having a baptism service. And we want all of you to sign up if you've either not been baptized 
or of when you were baptized, you were a small child or even an infant, as I was originally, we would like for you to be baptized again to please consider that. And we'll share some more teaching on that in the weeks to come, okay? So Philip now shares the gospel with an Ethiopian, and he baptizes him. And this is not just any Ethiopian. He's a member of the royal court. Right? So this is a very important member of the Ethiopian ruling class, and he's now taking the gospel of Jesus Christ back to Ethiopia, one of the most remote and exotic places on the earth at the time. The gospel is now being spread to the end of the earth, just as Jesus predicted, because Philip, fleeing from persecution, dealing with all kinds of hardship, refused to give up, no matter how difficult the task. And that's point number two, and I'll go through it quickly. Today, relentless Christians never give up on the mission before them. Relentless Christians never give up on the mission before them. Philip's fellow deacon, Stephen, was brutally killed. And then under heavy persecution, Philip has to flee from Jerusalem. He was sent to the, the worst place on the planet, Samaria. Very spiritually dark place. Many were demon-possessed. It's the last place you'd ever want to go. He experienced false conversions. His ministry was not completely successful. Some of the other church leaders come in behind him to pray for spirit baptism for the Samaritans because that was apparently not a part of Philip's ministry. And then after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip is supernaturally carried away, much like Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11. And then he preaches his way through all of the towns that he passes through until he finally settles in his new home, which we learn in chapter 21, he ends up settling in Caesarea, which was outside of Jerusalem. So Philip's life and ministry were pretty tough. There was extreme hardship all along the way. There were failures. Not everything that he did was a success, and I, I bet you he had no idea that he would end up living outside of Jerusalem when it was all said and done. I doubt that Philip's life turned out anything like he could have ever imagined before he completely gave his life to Jesus Christ. But he never gave up on the mission. He was relentless for the cause of Christ. Okay, as of today... I know that some of you have been considering some major changes in your life, shifting away from your status quo into uh, a bit of an unknown. Some of you are considering walking away from your current career path to pursue ministry, several of you actually, who have talked to me just recently. I know that some of you are considering shifting or reordering your time with family and yourself so that you can serve others even to a greater degree through the church. Giving up income, giving up personal time, giving up security and comfort and predictability. That's giving up your will for His. Those are all hallmarks of relentless Christians. Those who have a vision for something bigger than themselves. And absolutely will not stop or give up or give in until they see His will fulfilled in their lives. The fact is we all have one life on this earth, an opportunity to be a part of something greater, something bigger, something transcendent of anything that we could ever hope to achieve on our own. And I don't want to waste that opportunity. And that means risk, yes. It means uncertainty, it sure does. 
means totally trusting in him as my source. But honestly, what else are we going to live for? The greatest legacy that we could ever hope to leave on this earth is a trail of disciples all along the path that we walked those who would take up our work and relentlessly continue it for the next generation. What does it take to be a relentless Christian? You go wherever God leads you, no matter how crazy it may seem. And you never give up on the mission that He gives you, no matter how hard it may become. You do that, and you will not only live the most fulfilled life that you could ever imagine, but you'll leave a legacy that will go on for eternity. That sounds good to me. How about you? Yeah, let's pray.